and welcome to Transition Tea, the podcast dedicated to demystifying the world of healthcare transition and activation planning. I'm your host, Christina Olavidia, Director of Business Development and Communications at Yellow Brick Consulting. Today, I'm really excited. We have our own Director of Behavioral Health Services, Dr. Donna Demersion, on today. Donna, welcome to the podcast. Can you provide our listeners with a brief background about yourself? Absolutely. Hi, everyone. I am Donna Demersion. I'm a licensed psychologist. So I have been in the behavioral health care field for over 35 years. So um, I started out my career as a direct provider working with children and adolescents with uh, behavioral and um, learning disorders. Then I kind of worked my way into operations, uh, working with uh, various uh, behavioral health care agencies um, and found just a passion working in the operations uh, field and really like that. And then as the Mental Health Services Act kind of um, worked its way through uh, California with all the funding going in through the innovative um, programs throughout California, there was a lot of startup activities and startup programs going on. So I started doing activation for um, several programs throughout California. So did that for several years and just found a passion for um, all the excitement going into opening up new behavioral health care projects. And then met uh, Kelly and her team with uh, Yellow Brick, and she actually helped me on one of my projects. And uh, here I am as part of the Yellow Brick team. Well, we certainly have seen a lot of focus on behavioral health, especially after the pandemic. So we appreciate you being on Today, during our chat, we are actually going to be tasting David T. North African Mint. So here's Donna. Oh, and that is indeed very, very minty. So listeners, grab your own cup of choice of beverage and let's talk transition. Um, So Donna, thank you very much for your introduction. I think it gave folks a really good idea of, you know, just the depth of experience that you have as both a clinician and somebody who's worked in operations. Can you share, you know, what led you to, you know, pursuing a career in behavioral health care? Well, I think like everybody, I went to college and had no idea what I wanted to do. I was at Cal Poly Pomona, go Broncos. And I was uh, a business major because I, again, had no idea what I wanted to do, found myself in accounting and economics and just was not energized by those classes. So meandered over to the behavioral sciences classes and just uh, fell in love with psychology and sociology. I think I just was really interested in how the the brain worked. So um, just uh, really liked those courses, went and got my master's degree and knew I really wanted to work with kids. So uh, my first job out of college was working in a residential facility for kids that had been removed from the home due to severe um, abuse and trauma. So really difficult uh, first few years working with those kids, but I just uh, loved it. It was really, really rewarding work. So that's really what started me on my pathway in my career. You know, um, you touched on something and I I always ask this, um, you know, I myself am not a clinician, but you know, the work you do, it's, gotta be hard not to take it home. Um, how, 
you know, how have you navigated um, dealing with those difficult cases and those ones that keep you up at night? Not well at the beginning, right? It was really, really tough at the beginning, but I think you just, you, you learn to uh, cope with it. And I think some of us don't cope well, right? There's a lot of vicarious trauma for caregivers. Uh, certainly we see that in the healthcare facility, um, to, uh, the healthcare field too, right? With nurses, uh, certainly with COVID, so many nurses um, and caregivers have really not done well. And I don't think we've done enough to support them, but we see it with our mental health um, support staff as well. So um, I think we do, well, do, we do need more to support those. Uh, for me, I think I was fortunate that I was able to deal with it. But then at some point in my career, I think I did go into operations, right? Um, at some point, it's like, okay, I think I've done enough on the provider end of it. And I think I'll go into operations and be a little bit more um, detached uh, from it. So it was kind of a natural transition for me. Well, we, we certainly, with the pandemic, have seen tremendous focus on behavioral health facility development. I think um, it certainly has piqued a lot of folks' interest, and probably as a provider, this is something that you've seen a long time coming. Um, but can you share you know, what your ideas of what has been this driving force, this sudden increase of demand, and, and what you foresee happening in the next few years for behavioral health development? Yeah, it's been a long time coming. I mean, um, as, as I've seen, like over my career, we've been very, very fortunate in California, right? We do have the Mental Health Services Act. And for those of you that aren't familiar from other states, uh, you know, it's, it's the, the millionaire tax. We passed it several years ago for anybody earning income over a million dollars. It's a 1% tax that's set aside for very innovative mental health programs. Um, so we have a lot of great mental health programs in California, but those in other states aren't as fortunate. Um, but really what's been happening in the last several years is just a lot of mental health awareness and we're all seeing it you know, in the media, not only on the news, but in social media. And um, you know, it's really destigmatized de mental health. So people aren't afraid to come out and say, yeah, I've been struggling with this and uh, people aren't afraid to come out and, and get, get help. Unfortunately, we've had a lot of celebrity and uh, sports figures that have you know died of suicide. So that's uh, brought it out into the forefront. And then we've had the pandemic, which has seen a huge increase in anxiety, depression, uh, especially among our youth. And I think we're gonna be seeing that ripple effect for years to come. And I think it's really brought to the forefront the lack of services and resources. And I think we all know somebody, if not ourselves, who have tried to get services and found out there's no place to go. There's huge wait lists or people just don't know where to go. They try to call their insurance provider and there's just wait lists or they're told, sorry, there's, you know, there's no openings. Um, so I think um, what's happening is facilities and hospitals are finally realizing we need to do something. Uh, the huge epidemic or crisis, whatever we wanna call it, is, is emergency departments. And I know those of us in the behavioral health field have been talking about it for years. We've known about it, but I think everybody else is starting to realize that you know, the emergency uh, departments, the beds are, are um, a lot of them are filling up with clients that are in uh, behavioral health crises. These are little kids, you know, five and six years old, all the way up to geriatric 
patients because there's no place else for them to go. You know, when somebody's experiencing a behavioral health crisis, they end up in the emergency department. And if there's no um, beds available, that's where they sit. Sometimes they sit for days, even weeks at a time, and there's really no treatment for them. There are sometimes they end up with a security guard watching them, um, which is really not adequate treatment. So I think the hospitals are realizing this. They're realizing they need to do something. Um, it's not good for the behavioral health client that's sitting in there, and it's not good because it also takes up it takes a bed away from somebody that's in a medical crisis that needs that needs that bed. So it's great that that um, everybody's realizing that it's been a long time coming, and I'm excited to see what's going to happen over the next few years to, to kind of take care of this this long growing problem. Well, I know you attended um, many conferences, healthcare facilities, healthcare design, and you were really optimistic out of those yes. conferences um, with all of the various projects happening. Um, our own president and founder um, kind of had an inkling about this prior to 2022 before this really has become an overall trend. Um, and because of this, we were so lucky um, to have you and uh, Kelly Guzman really launch that behavioral health service line in 2022. Um, you're a fearless leader. And can you provide us some summaries of what's the difference between approaching a, a traditional healthcare transition and activation and a behavioral health transition and activation project. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, first of all, so excited to be part of the Yellow Brick team and, and, and lead this um, in terms of the behavioral health uh, service line. So, um, and so excited that Yellow Brick is recognizing that. Um, and going to these conferences, uh, you could just feel the excitement in terms of these the healthcare design uh, firms wanting that part in terms of that behavioral health, that, um, yeah, that behavioral health um, um, specialist. So in terms of the differences, there, there's, let me talk about the similarities first, because I think there are some similarities. In terms of project management, I think those basic project management building blocks are the same, right? In terms of, you know, we're still going to draw from that basic timeline and those elements in terms of those project management tools, we're, we're still going to use the, the, the basic toolbox. But I think we need to remember that they're very complex clients, right? They're, they're, they're very um, different from healthcare clients. Um, they've got a unique set of needs and we need to remember that when we're kind of building those, um, building those um, op operational workflows for them, right? They've, they've got their own set of evidence-based practices that we need to build um, those programs around. We also need to be very mindful about, about the design. And I think it's very important to have that clinician voice in the design portion of that and from the very beginning, because safety is number one and you can't just you know, build that um, facility without having that in mind because sometimes you can't go back and rebuild it, right? And, and the number one risk of patients in these facilities is, is suicide and really risk by, um, strangulation. So that ligature, making sure there's no ligature points in terms of where patients can wrap a bed sheet and strangulate themselves or self-injury from cutting themselves or using sharp objects. Those are really the, the number one things you need to be, to be mindful of. And then I think the other item that really we need to be mindful of are the workflows, the operational workflows in terms of how you're going to manage risk, how you're going to supervise 
clients in, in terms of um, observation and line of sight and how you're going to respond to um, the psychiatric crises um, in terms of the kind of the risk management plan. So I think those are the main points to be mindful of in terms of managing the project. Well, thank you for that. I know when um, I've, I've been really fortunate, I've got to work with you a lot, Donna, and I, I'm so glad um, because it, you're just such an expert in the field. So as we assess the development of the behavioral health service line this year, um, I love that you highlighted the similarities first, because I think we went to the drawing board and said, you know, let's scrub everything, let's change everything. And then as we began to assess that overall process, you did know, you know, why do we have to change this? Let's just use, you know, the expertise that we've already developed, that toolbox. Um, but then really hone in on those operational workflows. And I think dress rehearsal was one of those opportunities. You wrote an excellent article. Our, our top article of 2022 was actually your dress rehearsal um, program with that behavioral health focus. Um, you've attended a lot of them this year. Um, and how does that really help our clients with the development of those workflows? Well, yeah, I think I think that's a key component, right, of, of really preparing the staff and really walking through um, a, a day in the life mm -hmm. of um, of working with these clients, right? There, there's so many pieces to the, the operational workflow and, and really dealing with what's going to happen from, you know, preparing the staff for their day in terms of except, you know, when the client, checking the client in, um, admitting the client, how we're going to um, check for any contraband for the client. I mean, how we're going to do that risk assessment for the client, um, the flow of the client, getting them to and from their groups that they go to, getting them to and from, you know, any therapy, medication, all of that. And then also the, the unexpected. What happens if the clients get in some kind of an altercation? What if the client presents with risk? What if the client is saying, you know, I'm feeling like I want to hurt myself. How are we going to respond to that? Um, and then that, that issues follow-up is so important in terms of what are we identifying throughout that dress rehearsal? What did, not, what did we not expect to have happen? So we can identify all of that before we go into day one activation. Um, the staff need to feel comfortable. I mean, in most cases, they're going to be brand new staff that we're hiring that have never worked together as a team. They need to be comfortable with each other. They need to be comfortable with their workflow. And then a lot of times we're introducing new equipment. Maybe it's an EMR that they've never worked with before. Maybe it's Pixis. They've never worked with medication delivery system before. So we want to make sure they're fully um, comfortable in any issues that we've identified um, that we're able to follow, follow up on. So that dress rehearsal is, is so important and just reducing the anxiety um, of the staff before we start and we have day one. Um, I think staff will tell you, I've worked in so many facilities where we get feedback from staff and when staff are not satisfied, the number one reason they're not satisfied is they don't feel like they've had enough training. That is the number one reason why they're not satisfied. They don't feel like they've had enough support. They don't feel like they've had enough training. So I think the dress rehearsal is just one more way where we can support staff in their training and their confidence. Thank you for that. So you touched on some new features in buildings that we're seeing. Um, we're fortunate. We, we get education from you all the time. But can you give our listeners some trends that you are seeing in the behavioral health field 
um, that are helping address um, some of those gaps in design? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we have all seen pictures of the uh, institutions um, dating back from the 30s, 40s, and 50s. So we've, we've come a long way since then. Um, and it was really exciting to go, go to some of these workshops and see all the innovative ideas they've, they've come up with. Um, and and one, of the, you know, one of the things with recovery and, and one of the reasons you know, it's so different, behavioral health patients are so different, um, is research, research has really shown that if, if they have a voice in their recovery, they're gonna recover much quicker. Um, so we really want to give patients a voice and a choice in their recovery. So P, the, the designers are really recognizing that. It was really cool to see some of the, the, the innovations that, they're, that they've come up with. Um, lighting. So they've come up with these rooms where patients can change the color of the lighting in their room, which was really cool. Like even if for kids, that's a great idea just to give them some control over their environment. They can move their rooms or their room furniture around and put it how they want to put it. Um, for pediatrics, uh, pediatric clients, you know, in medical facilities, I know when my daughter got her tonsils out, I got to spend the night with her. She would have been traumatized at eight if she would have had to spend the night by herself. Well, I know for behavioral um, health clients, when they, if they're young, they go and they have to spend the night, you know, for a week at a time by themselves. They're recognizing that that's, you know, not very trauma-informed. So now they're putting beds for parents. So if a little kid needs to go in, you know, for a week in a psychiatric facility, the parent gets to spend the night with them. So I thought those are some great, um, great innovations. Uh, for safety, we already talked about ligature resistant. They're coming up with some great ways to make um, safe environments, but also make it look aesthetically, you know, pleasing in the environment. It doesn't look institutional. Um, they're making some great doors that are safe, um, but they're still ligature resistant. They look kind of like barn doors. Um, the furniture is looking much better. It doesn't look kind of that institutional. It looks much more home-like. Um, it used to be uh, when you're in, you know, kind of a, when you're, when you're in, you have two choices. You can either be in your room or this big, huge community room. Well, not everybody wants to either isolate or be social. So they're building kind of these little nooks where you can kind of be social and around people, but you can also be by yourself, you know, and kind of read in a little, you know, kind of a little niche if you want. So being much more mindful of people's control um, over their own space. So it's really, it's really neat to see all those um, great creative ideas that people are, are bringing to design. Um, I find that really interesting. And as a parent, I, I, very much that resonates with me a lot. Like I can't imagine my young children saying like, I'm good by myself. And I, I think it's really, um, considerate finally to say, you know, this is something that needs to be addressed. Um, children shouldn't have to be separated from their parents. So, um, great design elements. And we've actually got to see those across the country on several of the projects that we're working on. Um, something that you've educated us on and we're very aware of from the transition and activation side of the various patient populations, med surge, ICU, um, you know, labor and delivery, NICU, et cetera. You've talked about the continuum of care for the behavioral health patient population. Can you just briefly share um, what that looks like and the various types of facilities that are being developed to address those different types of populations? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we talked a little bit about, you know, the influx of, of the emergency departments and how they're just um, getting bombarded 
with behavioral health um, clients. So, um, you know, the answer is not to simply just build more inpatient beds. That, that's, I think we're recognizing that is not the answer. That, that seemed to be the answer about 20 years ago is build more beds, build more beds, but it's just a short-term solution. So we're really looking now at that continuum of care. And as we're looking at new projects and you and I have seen um, quite a few, they're really campuses and, and they're really cool, right? They're, hu they're building these huge campuses and maybe there's you know one or two units that are inpatient, but the rest are these really innovative models where maybe one, you know, it's, you've got a residential center, you've got um, kind of a, an acute uh, short-term, you know, residential model, you've got outpatient. Um, so it's really a continuum of care. So it's built to be, you know, from outpatient all the way to, you know, acute psychiatric and kind of everything in between. So we're not just putting a Band-Aid where let's just build some short-term, you know, psychiatric beds. We're also seeing some really um, innovative programs where they're using their emergency department space, right? But designating some beds to be sh very short-term, like less than 24-hour alternatives to the ED, right? So they're building them so they've got a psychiatrist and a social worker. So they're taking those patients, they're taking them out of the ED and they're doing really, really intensive, it's psychiatric kind of emergency work with them out, taking them out of the ED. They've got their own, it's a very calming space. It doesn't look like an ED at all. It's, it's very trauma informed, but let's get you on medication as soon as possible. Let's get a social worker, a case manager. Let's get you referred for a follow-up appointment, you know, within, 48 hours and let's get you some medication. Let's get you sent home so you can recover and um, get you out of the ED. We've all been in EDs and know how traumatizing that is. It's super loud, there's bright lights, there's lots of stuff going on. It's nowhere where somebody with a, a mental health crisis is going to recover. Absolutely. So um, it's really good to see that continuum of care. It keeps people out of, nobody wants to be in an inpatient unit. That's no, it's super expensive. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's not the best level of care. So that continuum of care, you get people before they get that acute. And then it's aftercare for, out, if they do have to go into the inpatient, it's immediate aftercare. Um, it's much less expensive and much more effective and efficient. So it's great to see those campuses um, going up. And they also have a lot of telehealth models built in. You and I are seeing that. Everything we see is how it has a lot of telehealth rooms. We saw those popping up in the pandemic and they're proving to be very, very cost-effective and efficient, and a lot of um, clients like it much better than having to drive for an appointment, so. Well, it's very convenient, and yeah. to your point earlier, I think just normalizing the conversation, right? Addressing it before it becomes something large. So if I'm feeling uncomfortable, if I'm feeling anxious, um, addressing that before it becomes depression, be before it becomes something much more serious that then requires a much more escalated form of care. So um, I love that fact as um, you know, a mother, I'm receiving stuff from the even schools now um, that have these you know, behavioral health classes that parents can take so that we're educated, right? We're not just ignoring a problem and saying this is normal teen angst or this is normal you know, child behavior. And we're saying, you know, it's okay to talk about it now. So um, yeah. I love that you have educated us and we appreciate just all of your experience that you've brought. Um, so speaking of experience, um, 
know, you've been in the field, you said for almost 35 years. And I know this is a hard question, but what has been your biggest lesson learned from your, you know, thinking back to your first behavioral health activation experience to now that you still draw upon? Um, I think it probably, believe it or not, it'd probably be a more recent experience, right? I think it's probably um, not involving the clinician. Um, and, and one of the, the two workshops, the design, the healthcare design workshops I went to, what I really appreciated was they're recognizing the importance of the voice of the clinician. And one of the ones I went to, one of the workshops in particular, not only did they listen to the clinician, they had a team of stakeholders in one of their projects where they listened to, um, they actually listened to patients and family members of patients, which I thought was really, really cool, right? When they designed um, their facility. I hadn't heard that before, um, especially the family members. But one project in particular, um, it was a project that um, an agency had won an RFP and the provide the the uh, they were really excited because the the uh, person the uh, I don't know I don't, don't want to disclose but the the building was already built right and the, super excited we got this state of the art building it's already built we're looking for an operator to come on mental health operator to come on and operate it they were super excited about it so when the agency went to look at the um, building. It was beautiful, it was gorgeous, brand new building. But when you did the walkthrough and when you're looking at, and it was a, a crisis residential program, so patients would be living there, acute patients in acute behavioral health crisis, two-story building, open stairwell with a, an elevator with no badge reader. So what could possibly go wrong in that situation with acute uh, with patients in an acute mental health crisis, right? Yeah. So you've got an open stairwell, right? Um, you've got a closed elevator that patients have access to. And the provider was going to have to double their staffing model because you had bedrooms on both floors with no line of sight. So there's no way you could have staff on both, you know, monitoring. So it was just a great example of a gorgeous building that looked awesome but functionally it was not going to work. So if you had a, a clinician from the beginning, that, well, not, they probably had a clinician, but they probably didn't have a clinician specializing in design, right? That would look at it with kind of the eagle eye that somebody with design in mind would have looked at. Now there's some things you could do afterwards, like maybe put a badge reader on the elevator, but there's not much you could do about the open stairwell, right? Um, and then you'd have to just really increase your budget for staffing on both levels. But sometimes you and I, we talk about like the buildings built, we need to learn how to live in it, but you know. But you know, to your point, um, just, you know, operational design, if you're there at design, you're coming up with this because, you know, that's two of the main driving forces that we're seeing in all facilities, right? Is staff safety um, and patient safety. And we always say that's like a, a red flag, a, a high priority um, item that we want to address. So um, having that clinician at the forefront to identify some of those potential gaps um, can be cost-saving, although it does maybe result in some iterations of, you know, design. Um, ultimately, it does pay off to have that clinician there. So I know the NIHD board actually 
posted that ROI? What's the turn of investment on the clinician voice? And although, you know, costly at the forefront, a little bit more costly, it does end up paying off at the end with the overall design. Yeah. um, patient move planning is something that, um, I know all of the clients we've worked with that have a project that's resulting in the transfer of patients. That's always what they want to talk about. They're always interested in it. Um, most folks have never done it before. Um, so it's already complex, right? But then coordinating the transfer of behavioral health patients is an added layer of complexity that really mm-hmm. requires some thoughtful consideration for both staff and patient safety. Um, as a behavioral health specialist, can you share some items that, you know, healthcare leaders should keep top of mind when planning the move of behavioral health patients? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think you already touched on it. Obviously the planning is huge, right? I mean, you have to have a very, very uh, thorough move plan. Um, and it's keeping in mind, I mean, how, how complex the patients are, you know, we already talked about the importance of, of uh, behavioral health clients really having a voice in their recovery. Um, sorry, Oliver has, has some feedback on this, on this topic as well. Um, I would involve the patients in their move plan, right? I would ask them what's, what's important to them. Um, and I would take those considerations to heart, right? As much as, as, much as we can um, take their suggestions in, I would take them in, I would give them I would give the, uh, the I would give them as much um, notice as possible of the move, so that they're they're aware. Uh, I would I would give their family members as as much notice as we possibly can, keeping in mind their timeline. I don't know. It depends if it's a residential long term facility or more of an acute short term. You know, obviously if they're not going to be involved in the move, we're not going to notify them of the move. Um, if they're forensic patients, um, I know we did have a move with forensic patients. Keep in mind that often um, our patients have had very negative encounters with police and just seeing police can trigger them. So if there needs to be a police presence during the move, we need to have a specific plan with that because we can um, expect that that's going to trigger them and they're going to decompensate. We need to have a, a plan for that. Um, I think we need to um, have some kind of plan for the, um, the day and expect delays. We can't control when the ambulance shows up. So we need to have some kind of a planned activity for the day to keep the patients um, busy during the day, knowing there's going to be delays both on the front end, the existing facility and, and the new facility. Um, I think we can expect changes in the patients throughout the day of uh, leading up to the move and the day of the move. So I would have frequent check-in meetings and plan for those both the day before, the morning of, and throughout the day um, of the move. Uh, contraband and safety is number one. So we need to have a plan for checking uh, the patients before they leave the existing facility and before they enter um, the new facility. So I think you're seeing where I'm going. There's just a lot of planning and a lot of logistics. I think communication with the the patients throughout the day, if we can have their therapists there, their clinicians there throughout um, the move, that would be very, very helpful to support them. If we can show them just to help them prepare, if we could show them the new facility, that would be great. If we can't, if we can take pictures or video and show them just so they know what to expect, obviously they're going to be super anxious. They don't know what to expect. It's a new move. Again, it just depends on what type of facility. If it's residential, 
it's going to be much more meaningful versus if it's at a queue and there's going to be there for another day or two that's much different but a residential is a pretty significant move that's kind of their their home um, and don't forget to involve family members right um, and even have them if we can have them there if they're supportive that would be great to have them there and have them um, engaged and then the rest of it is all that project management right uh, arranging for the ambulances and the strategic part of 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 the move. Um, I think I touched on hopefully most of it. No, I, I think you touched on all of it. And we, um, you certainly have had our experience moving behavioral health patients. And, um, you know, we continue to see that trend. So addressing uh, staff safety, patient safety, and ultimately, I loved how you touched on just reducing the overall anxiety, right? Because, um, you know, it's already anxious to be in the hospital. And, you know, we don't want to add to that overall experience um, for, for the patient in a negative way. We want to calm them down. We want to ensure that they have, you know, that we have a solid plan. And that's our overall objective in general when approaching a patient move. So um, thank you for sharing that. Well, we're on our final question. And um, it is, if somebody, you know, is interested in leading or planning the activation of a new behavioral health space, um, and just are looking for some advice or, you know, where to begin, um, what would you say? Well, I think we say it all the time at Yellow Rick, right? Give yourself long, a long runway, right? In terms of engaging um, the, the activation piece of it, right? Um, make sure you leave plenty of time for that project management piece of it. And I think just recognize that it, it's, it's a specialty. Mm -hmm. Right. Recognize it that behavioral health is its own specialty. These are very, very complex clients and that one size fit all activation and planning uh, project management just just doesn't apply. We need to treat it as its own specialty, which I'm really glad to see everybody is most people are starting are um, are starting to do. Um, we talked about the design element, really get a clinician, a behavioral health clinician in on the design as soon as possible. It will save you money and headaches, right? It'll pay for itself in the long run. Um, and I think I would say just have fun. It's like an exciting time to be able to build just a, a really innovative state-of-the-art behavioral health facility. It's so needed right now. So I would say really enjoy it. It just it would be so great to be a, a part of that. So I would just say um, get your team on board and have fun. Well, all right, Donna, um, speaking of fun, I, I know you and I had the opportunity to discuss some of our dialogue today prior to actually um, sitting down uh, this, this morning, but now it's time for some rapid fire questions uh -oh. that we have not seen. Um, and, you know, as the self-appointed Yellow Brick Fund Committee president, I assume you're game. Is that right? Let's go. Let's go. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. I'm going to start with a softball, easy one. Dogs or cats? Oh, I think you heard definitely dogs. Dogs. Um, our listeners who don't know, um, Donna's dog actually won employee of the month this year. Um, Donna, can you share a little bit about your, your dogs, but the one dog that you um, love more than the other? <laughs> well, I can't say I love him more than the other because they're both within earshot of each other. But Oliver is my, uh, he's my rescue pup. He's going to be, he's got a big birthday coming up. He's going to be four years old on December 23rd. 
He's an adopted uh, Chihuahua mix. So um, he's my big giant, uh, he's, my, he's my big baby. He's not really big, he's only 18. He's 18 and a half pounds. Uh, That's so big for Chihuahua. So. He's, yeah, he's a little, he's a little, uh, he's a little on the chunky side, so. All right, um, favorite winter beverage? You know, I don't drink hot beverages. Okay. So I'm going to have to need to be hot. It can be just something wintry. Um, I'm going to have to go with Coke Zero. It's my, it's my go-to, it's my go-to beverage. Coke Zero. All seasons. <laughs> it's my all season go-to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, favorite song? Oh, my Favorite song is Ooh La La by Rod Stewart. Ooh La La by Rod Stewart. Okay, we love some yep. Rod Stewart. Hot yep. pants. I like it. Mm -hmm. um, if you could go on vacation right now, like drop this podcast, go out the door, where would it be? Mm. I think right now I would go to, I'm going to go to Australia. Ooh. Yeah. I'm gonna go to Australia. You know, I, Wait, what season is it right now in Australia? I think it's, I think it might be summer there. I'm a communications major, not a geography major. So I have no clue. Um, if it's summer there, it's a, really a bonus that I'm really going. Okay, but I heard Australia has some of the deadliest animals according to my fun fact champion son. Um, so I, I'm a little afraid of Australia. Oh. Um, okay, here is the hard question that uh -oh. I- so the World Cup is happening right now for anyone um, that knows it is a big deal pretty much everywhere in the world. Um, so I'm going to give you three player names oh, and, and you're going to tell me or guess what country they play for. This is an epic fail, but go ahead. Okay. All right. I'm starting really easy. I got two easy ones and one hard one. Cristiano Ronaldo. So I would guess what country he plays for? Correct. Can I have three choices? <laughs> um, Mexico, the United States, or Portugal? Portugal. Oh, okay. Ding, ding, ding. You got one right. Okay. Lionel Messi. Can I have three choices? I'll give you flag colors, blue and white. And they're in South America. I have no idea. Argentina. These, so for those that know, uh, Lionel Messi has never won a World Cup. And he's, you know, for some, many, one of the top players ever. And he is uh, currently doing pretty good. So, and this one, I'm going to just say, you probably have no clue, but I'll give you some choices. This guy is an up and comer. Um, Kylian Mbappe. Um, and I, your choices are Germany, France, or Spain. Mbappe. I'm going to go with Spain. Uh, it is France, and uh, France is also doing. So for ah. those who are listening to this podcast, um, who knows who won, but it might be France or Argentina, and that's who we're see foreseeing go to the the final probably so we'll see if my wow. are correct all right all right uh, who's your hero? huge disappointment 
huge disappointment, but it's okay. We found out you do not like soccer. Um, who is your hero? Someone who inspires you. You know what? You know what I'm going to say? Because I just finished reading her autobiography is Viola Davis. Oh, I'm actually, thank you, Donna, for that recommendation. Um, I also enjoy that. Um, why, why is she inspiring you? Just hearing her story, right? The trauma that she endured and how she just came out of that and just, yeah, so inspiring. I've recommended that book to so many people. It's just amazing. Well, I, yeah. I, this flows right into my next question then. Uh, for listeners that are listening, um, the last book you read that you would actually recommend, and that book is? Becoming Me, Viola Davis. It is great. Listeners, definitely, um, if you're listening on Audible, it's a great listen and um, benefit. Viola actually narrates it, so she's got it. Yeah. Okay, yeah. final question. And I told you oh. this one was going to be coming. Um, it's the end of the year. People are starting to think of what am I going to do next year? Mm. So what's your new year's resolution? Right. So here, fun fact about me, I, I never, my new year's resolutions are never painful. I always pick something super fun and my friends make fun of me. They're like, that can't be a new year's resolution. <laughs> like last year, my new year's resolution was to go to Hawaii. Hey. And I didn't think I was going to make it. And then we got a project in Hawaii. How yes. great is my life, right? And we get so, to hear about it all the time. So, so my New Year's resolution, because you know I love playing pickleball, my New Year's resolution is to actually play in a pickleball tournament for 2023. Oh, I will be your number one spectator. So yep. I'm packing up my paddle and taking it on the road for 2023. All right. We're gonna see Donna, pickleball champion. Um, well, I didn't say cha I didn't say champion. Champion. I said champion. playing. The bar is low. I said playing a tournament. Winners at Yellow Brick. So, um, <laughs> well, you can bring um, your whistle and tracksuit. <laughs> okay. If listeners want to get in contact with you, how can they reach out to you? Do you have a LinkedIn? I do have a LinkedIn. I absolutely do. Um, all right. Well, there you have it. Reach out to Donna um, if you have some questions. Uh, I know she's super responsive and active on that site. Well, Wonderful. That actually does it for this season of Transition Tea. Um, we want to thank our listeners for all their support this year. We actually launched this podcast in 2022 and are very excited to say we're bringing it back in 2023. So on our next season of Transition Tea, we're going to continue to meet with healthcare leaders from across the country and chat over best practices, new insights, and transition at expertise. We thank you so much for listening and following us this season. If you want to hear more conversations like this one with Donna, please subscribe to our Transition Tea podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you enjoy your podcast. And if you actually want to see this video, see Donna and I have some fun, you can follow us on YouTube where all of our Transition Tea podcasts are loaded. Until next year, listeners, happy new year.